Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. One question that I often ask myself is, given how I feel right now, if I were to fast forward five years and I look back, would I feel the same level of pressure or anxiety about the situation? And I'm yet to come across a situation where it would still be that relevant five years out. and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. Let me introduce you to Vidya Srinivasan, Vice President and General Manager at Google Ads. Before her time at Google, Vidya was the general manager at Amazon for Amazon Redshift, AWS Glue, and AWS Lake Formation. Before that, she was an engineering leader for 10 years at IBM. Vidya shares how she's dealt with high levels of pressure throughout her career and how she coaches her team to be more comfortable with risk and failure. The audio is a bit funky in places. With everything going on, we're recording in some more challenging environments, but hey, we're all just doing the best we can right now, right? Enjoy our conversation with Vidya Srinivasan. Vidya, welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to have you here. Super excited to be here today. You have taken an interesting path with your career, starting off as an engineering leader for 10 years at IBM, then you became general manager at Amazon AWS, and now as VP GM at Google Ads. Can you tell us more about your role at Google and how you're thinking about this moment of, of disruption and everything that's going on? Sure. First of all, thanks for having me here and thanks to all the listeners. So my role at Google, I, I lead measurement and analytics for Google's advertising products. The organization that I lead is composed of engineers, data scientists, product managers, and uh, we need a fairly broad portfolio all the way from Google Analytics to YouTube ads measurement. With respect to all the recent uh, developments with COVID-19, it is a time where marketers and advertisers are pretty hard hit. And also the situation is fast evolving and really this is not something any of us have encountered before. So the stakes are very real. And if anything, I feel the work that we do is even more important given everything that's going on uh, than ever before. I think when a lot of people think about recessions or challenging like economic circumstances, most people think about the marketers or the advertisers, but it didn't even occur to me about the platforms that provide those mediums and the impact of that. What would you say has been your approach with your career trajectory into how you got to where you're at now? So as you pointed out earlier, I've been in a couple of different domains at this point. And I can now look back and say that it's, there was actually some commonality in how I thought through these things. I will say early on when I was just starting my career, first five, six years, uh, I was just sort of figuring out what I wanted to do largely. So it's not like I had a plan. 
But looking back, I can tell you there were a couple of things that stand out. I think the first thing is I always have tried to figure out what I do well uh, and where I can potentially stand out. And by that, by that I mean, uh, what are the set of things, uh, skills, capabilities, where I, in which I can naturally do better than say another random thousand people. And I try to find jobs where I get to do more of that. So that is one. And the second thing is around being open to taking risks. That's also been super, super critical in the set of opportunities and the growth that I've enjoyed in my own career. So if you sort of take a step back and look, the first transition in my career was to decide to go from being an IC engineer, where my job was primarily coding myself and then helping a couple of other engineers with the same, to being a manager and leading the team in a management function. And it was a risky move because I was good at what I did. I was actually good at coding, but I still felt I, I could do more in terms of having an impact uh, in a different capacity and build closer connections to the product and customer base by taking on a management control. With that, one of the risks I took was my first, very first management job was of a somewhat broken team and a product that wasn't doing well. And many of the more established managers essentially didn't want the job. Just as it's risky for me, it's also risky for the company to take a bet on somebody uh, when there are improvement skills. So it made it an easy decision for the company to give that to me at the time because honestly, there are very many people. So that was sort of my break into getting into the management path, uh, technical management overall. And then I, of course, had to learn, develop skills, make mistakes and do things and figure out what I really liked and whether I wanted to continue on that path. More recently, I would say I switched from being a general manager in AWS in a career mostly spanning around analytics and databases and decided to move to Google, which is a different company, but also decided to move to Google Ads, which is a completely new domain. Again, this is around taking risks, but not in, a, in an unconstrained way. So even in, the, in my current job at Google, a good chunk of my responsibilities lie around building and managing high-performance teams, having clarity and strategic vision around where we want to go. And a lot of that is around clear analytical thinking and really listening to customers. Now, skills by these are all things I built up over the course of my career, especially in my uh, prior role as general manager. And I could really lean in on that while at the same time getting adapted to a new company and learning the nuances of this business. So I really believe in sorting out what is it that you're good at and then being brave with taking a few measured risks in spite of potential failure modes that might happen. I know we're here to, to talk about operating under pressure and I'm really excited to dig in because in thinking about a lot of the things that you shared and some of the challenges that you mentioned, the methodologies that you're laying out about how you're assessing risk and how you're assessing the different opportunities to apply your skill set. Uh, I can imagine the impact that that line of thinking has had in these really high stakes environment. Yeah, that's a very exciting topic to, to dive into. And starting from your career transition, and uh, you made the brief decision to change the domain multiple times. And I'm sure in some of those transitions, the pressures are pretty high. What are the methodologies do you use to cope with that? I think there are a couple of different things that come into play, especially, I mean, it comes into play all the time, but it's even exaggerated when we're under more pressure, like, like what we're going through right now. A few things I would say is, the first thing is figuring out what we want to do. So figuring out the priorities of what is it that is important, given current situations, 
and having clarity around uh, the set of things that we really want to double down on. The second thing, and equally important and even more difficult to do, is to figure out what is it that you do not want to do. Because a lot of the times it is uh, super hard to take limited resources and put into efforts that you want to double down on when you're pre-committed to so many things that have been, for the lack of a better term, legacy uh, projects or legacy investments. And the third thing is around doing all of this is the sort of how you go about it, right? Leading with empathy through situations like this. So let me maybe drill down a little bit on each of this. I have a fairly elaborate framework that I have in terms of figuring out priorities and figuring out how do you approach that problem statement. Part of it is figuring out what are the set of things that you want to do near term for the business. So having time horizons in mind. So have a clear idea for the business that you're in, what must you deliver in the next quarter, in the next year, in the next five years, and have an investment strategy for how you want to go about it. For a startup, for example, the next quarter is primarily what they're going to do. For a more mature business, I think the risk is that you may not look around the corner and the five years may, the innovation that needs to happen in the three to four year time horizon may not happen. So first you have to have a framework for what are the set of things you want to pursue in which time horizon. And then the second thing around prioritization is having the ability to clearly communicate these priorities in terms of metrics and clearly stated goals. A lot of times inspirational vision statements get misrepresented across the teams and sort of lost. People come up with an interpretation that is most favorable to the set of things that they want to do anyway. So I think there is a set of things that one has to do in terms of metricizing the priorities and making it very clear what is it that we're really going after. So that is the first part, figuring out what to do, having metrics around it, making it very clear, having a time horizon around the set of metrics as well. The second part is what not to do. And honestly, this is the hardest thing as a manager because it involves people and, it, and it's a very emotional thing. These are projects that people have been working on for a long time, things that they're personally very passionate about and they've put in a lot of their own life into. And for that to be, to be successful with sort of attacking that area of the whole strategy is to go and explain why, what the overall vision is and why we are defunding an effort that is most likely quite useful. There are people, there are customers who use it, it's just that it didn't make the top five or the top six, and it's the number 20th on the list. And it's this process of explaining why investing in, in the 15 to 100 items in your priority list is really going to take away from the top five that you need to absolutely hit right. Uh, nevertheless, it's an emotional process, but I think that's, that's part of the responsibility of leading people. And the third aspect is leading with empathy and that is, I would say, a little more introspective than the first two, in that uh, we all have our own biases, we all have assumptions that we've built in whether or not we are conscious. In, in fact, in most cases, it's not something that we are even aware of very much. And there is a tendency to expect other people to react to situations the same way we do. And very often, that is not the case. Everyone's experience is vastly different, and how they experience and react to it is just vastly different. And on that front, if you want the first two to actually happen and land well, you have to be open to constantly questioning your own 
system of beliefs and assumptions and being very open to being wrong. And again, there are many mechanisms one can employ for that. In my own case, for example, I do listening tours where I just get together 20, 25 people and talk to them about how they're feeling about different things. I have an anonymous feedback forum. My counterparts help do pulse surveys on how people are feeling. You'll have a lot of input points. At the end of the day, it's about being open to them and really questioning yourself and your belief systems around what you expect. And then taking all these inputs and coming up with a plan that is reflective of what is optimal for the group as a whole. So sort of long convoluted answer, but this is a tough question. So it has, it's a fairly multidimensional uh, uh, thing to solve. That's very helpful to lay out the framework you have. It's a lot easier that way for people to absorb what it is and also they can sort of relate in those scenarios and apply one of those principles. When the pressure is high, what do you do to diffuse the pressure to feel like you can still focus and get things down? So on a personal level and in terms of how I coach people when they come to me and think, hey, I just feel super, a lot of pressure about this thing and it's just really getting to me. I think there are two ways to frame that situation that has helped me personally and for others. One is to really put things in perspective. By far, most of us, the jobs that we have, even if we fail pretty badly, there are really no catastrophic consequences. It's not like anyone's going to die or something really bad is going to happen, right? I'm not saying it, it will have zero consequences on your career, but still in the larger scheme of things, it always helps to sort of take a step back and put it in the context of your life and the span of your career. And then say, okay, is that really worth fretting over to the degree that I'm really fretting over? And one question that I often ask myself is, given how I feel right now, if I, if I were to fast forward five years and I look back, would I feel the same level of pressure or anxiety about the situation? And I'm yet to come across a situation where it would still be that relevant five years out. And similarly, looking back, there has been no situation, and I've had plenty of very stressed out days, but there has been nothing that I look back and say, oh, I, I genuinely should have been stressed out. That was something that would have affected everything that I did later on, and I couldn't have recovered from that. So I think sort of stepping back and having that perspective helps just to put things in where it's supposed to be. Yeah, and it's so easy for us to forget that. Sometimes it's just so bogged down to the actual situation we're in and I forgot the larger scheme of things and the approach we are taking is really helpful. Looking back, some of the worst days are probably even laughable today when looking back. Exactly. It's one that you can recite to your friends and say, can you believe I actually did that or actually reacted this way? So I think remember that. And the other thing is also remember how you emerged from those situations. I mean, we've all been in various births and in fact, more on the personal side than on the work side, there have been hardships and adversities that you've faced all around life in different spheres of life and people think that have affected you personally or your friends. And you know that we are a resilient species and we always emerge with optimism in most cases. So I think it's also good to remember all the cases where, yes, you were there and you felt incompetent or you felt like this is an insurmountable problem, but it did pass and you did come up, come out, and there were many successes to draw from. Keeping that context in mind is probably the most important thing. Great. And that's a very actionable insight. So I can't imagine myself doing that right after. Do you have a story when you were under immense pressure and applied what you learned, like the approach you, you mentioned, and, and what does success look like when you do apply those skills? 
I mean, there are many, many stories because as much as I say these things, it's actually hard to practice. So I do end up going into these cycles. Maybe I'll pick one that is super early in my career and you know, it, it really now falls in the laughable category. But I can tell you at the time, it was very, very real to me. I took my first management job ever. And it is always a hard thing when you do the first transition from an IC to a manager because it feels like you ha you're not doing anything. Before you could point to a piece of code and say, this is what I did. And there's a sense of accomplishment and there's a sense of, you know, something that people can't take away from you. You accomplish something that is provable in a way. And then as a manager, you're mostly in advisory, in capacity, influencing, moving people around, helping, but it's hard to pinpoint exactly what you did. And so it's a difficult situation, I think, till you get comfortable with that. And I made all the usual mistakes about, and I just felt this pressure at that time to really prove myself and to prove that I can do this well. And not just to prove to the company or anything, just to prove to myself, because it was also an exploration for me. And I remember making many, many mistakes. There was this uh, desire to control and desire to know all the answers, which you cannot when you have a much broader scope. As an engineer, you know a lot about one area as a manager you need to know a little about a lot and just be able to dive in as needed and to make the transition was hard i'm sure i upset several of the engineers who used to report to me at the time i think for me a turning point around then was one of my peers who was an experienced manager pulled me aside and said hey you're just trying too hard you, you need to you need to chill you used to be good at being an ic and a team lead type engineer what happened like so much of that can be carried over and you suddenly want to drop everything that you were good at and suddenly master something that you think is management and the process you basically let go of the set of things you do well and trying to only work on the stuff you have to develop and so even though it's intuitive and it sounds like well why wouldn't you know that but it still made a difference that somebody recognized it and and sort of gave it to me straight and just that change in perspective about my job as, you know, maybe I should just approach this. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to not think about boundaries about what should a manager do versus an IC do. I'm just going to do the set of things that I can do well and I want to have fun while I'm at it. And then I'm going to learn as I go. I stumbled through all of that, trying to figure all of that out. Setting goals and defining that clearly to the team helped a lot. There is a theory of the set of things and sort of introspective personal transformation that has to happen but then there are many actual actionable tools and mechanisms that one can use to aid so don't lose sight of that so setting that clear goals because that helps communicate with the team and also it helped communicate with my manager because i was also trying to make sure that i was aligned in moving that forward and i think looking back this is certainly one thing where i was like how silly of me to feel the way i did because what was the worst thing that could happen? Almost nothing really bad could have happened. Worst case, I went back to being an IC. Yeah. I tried to be a manager later on. But you learn, you live and learn. And now looking back, you must say, well, this is a small team. The risk is so much smaller compared to where we are right now. I certainly went through moments like that before as a first-time manager. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. 
Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Last time when we talked, I'm really fascinated by the notion you mentioned the transition from operating out of fear into operating out of hunger, because that's just totally paradigm shift. Can you share a little more on that and what triggered that transition and how it feels differently afterwards? I think now I can look back and say this. I think I was blessed uh, early on in my career to be in roles that I felt fairly incompetent. And I could basically be very safe and still do really well. I could operate well within the confines of my abilities and have a fairly high probability of success. And it is a comfortable place to be. And then I got some opportunities. I got a job where the default was going to just be failure. I mean, it was a high risk, high reward project, but the risk was super high. And I was trying all my usual techniques to ensure success. I, I tried to put in metrics. I tried to think about all the ways we can reduce the risk. And essentially, going down that path, it was very clear that I would not be respecting the opportunity. If you get this conservative, you'll just not have a shot at the opportunity that's available. And I didn't have any choice but to really either leave, leave the job, go find something else to do, or just overcome that fear of failing and just say, hey, this is an incredible challenge. I'm very lucky to be in a position of having a shot at attempting this challenge. And therefore, I'm going to look at this as a game where I'm trying to win and I'm trying to try everything I can to possibly achieve that objective. And so for me, it almost had to go to the sort of the bottom where there was no other option but to change my perspective. And then once that happened, there is no going back. I mean, once you sort of taste that and you're okay with failure, I know what was that can happen and I'm okay with that. Then all the rest sort of starts to fail. I would hope that other people can get there without having to get to that bottom that I had to. But nevertheless, I feel fortunate to have had that experience and that has helped me in every sphere of life, not just at work, but within my personal life as well. Can you expand that a little bit? Like the personal life? part of it? So I have a fairly active life at work, but I also have a very busy life at home with four children. So I have two teenagers and twins who are toddlers. And so fairly widespread in ages, needs, and just the set of things one has to do to keep up. And there's a big age gap between the first two and the next two. So I think for me, I don't know that I would have had my twins if I didn't feel I could take on risks. And that's a muscle really that I developed through all my work experiences, where I felt, you know, something bad could happen, but, you know, I'm okay with that. I remember going to work and letting my manager know that, hey, I'm likely thinking about expanding my family and do you think it's really going to affect my career? My manager at the time basically said, of course it's going to affect your career. It would be very silly for you to do it right now, <laughs> given the path you're on. 
and i mean uh, he was just being super honest and being upfront with me about potential things that could happen not that there was any less support or anything like that extremely supportive environment but it was a very real possibility but at the end of the day i wanted to do what i want to do in my life first and then work follows and i just went ahead and uh, turned out i had twins but that kind of mentality where i feel free to pursue the set of things i want whether it's at work or at home without worrying about all the possible consequences and preventing all the bad consequences really helps and i'm not saying it gives you permission to be reckless i think you have to evaluate a lot of things and make choices that are reasonable but holding yourself back could prevent you from achieving the potential of what's possible for yourself and this is a very good story of applying what we learned at work as a manager a leader and then that will benefit the way we deal with personal life as well and honestly that's one of the things i like being a manager because it's the, the skills we learn and develop at work is so transferable and the mentality mentioned earlier is very helpful too really transition to dreaming out of the, the hunger of the, what are the opportunities out there instead of worrying too much about what potentially can go wrong and it looks like many cases the outcome turned out just fine <laughs> as you mentioned there's no way going back after the first time you tried it i think that muscle memory is really helpful yeah i would actually argue that beyond it turning fine my life would not have had so many aspects and i would not have the personal life or the career i have unless i took all those risks so i think it's it's beyond just being fine i think it really opens doors to having a richer set of experiences do you think that's a, a virtue that are essential to an engineering leader the ability to focus on the opportunity versus the too much on a risk i think it's critical in any function honestly certainly it's super applicable for engineering leaders because you know in a lot of cases people come together we have some of the top engineers in in the bay area and in many of the companies that we have here and these are all people who who are used to being successful probably through their school life and earlier jobs and they just used to success and used to being able to do really well in a sort of guaranteed way and one of the things you have to do is sort of break out of that mold to test yourself in uncomfortable situations where it is possible that this next set of things you're taking on will not be as successful as the things that you've done in the past and to be okay with that and to embrace that because true innovation happens when you question all the assumptions when you sort of disrupted all the existing things that people have taken for granted and sort of look past so that you can leapfrog into uh, a different way of thinking and by definition almost all of those ideas and thoughts they end up having a very high failure rate we hear most often of the successes but they have a very high failure rate and unless you're able to break through to being fine with that we will not be able to try these things out so i think it's super critical to continue the innovation that we are seeing and to honestly just just have fun yeah and this is almost a pass every engineer managers had to go through as they had mentioned when they are engineers or ic's they are working on things that are the outcome is more 
predictable and you're going to see the result very quickly. Like you, you work on a project, it's launched, then you can see the features and people are using it. But as you move up as a manager, the outcome may not be visible for months, sometimes even years. And then you have less control, less visibility. So being okay with that is important. How do you coach other and your leaders in your organization to be more comfortable with that? You have experience, it's transforming for you, but how do you help other people go through that transition? So I think there are a set of things you can do in terms of coaching one-on-one or doing sort of, you know, podcasts like these where you can talk about these things and how it can be useful. Again, this falls in the theory category of why this might be something one should try to adopt. But there are also things that one can do to foster an environment and culture that makes it easier to adopt some of these things. I'll talk about maybe two things that I do. There are many, many things that one can possibly do. The first thing is to, whether or not the particular project is a success or a failure, is, is again perception. I mean, what? how do you define success? Is it only if you meet certain revenue goals or is a project where you try super hard, you failed, you made some technology out of it that may benefit you in some other domain for the company as a whole, but they really went full force and explored a potential and at least came out with an answer that that road cannot be uh, taken, that could also be viewed as a success. So I think the first thing, if you want behaviors where you want people to take risks, you have to make it okay for the people taking risk to have a soft landing when they fail. And that goes back to how we do performance management, how you message these things to the team, how are the people in this project, when they failed, how are they viewed? How are they evaluated? What was the next thing that they did? So in other words, um, there's a, a good failure and a bad failure. That's right. So again, there lots of judgment comes into play, right? Because some projects fail due to negligence and you have to differentiate between that and one where you tried and it was a ambiguous project. It was something where the failure the probability was super high. So again, lots of judgment comes into play and it puts a greater burden on the leadership team to get aligned and have a sense for what really happened and to appropriately uh, react to the situation. So I think that is one thing. The other thing I would say is I try to allocate a certain budget in terms of number of resources on my team to work on projects that are much higher ambiguity and have say a three to five year time horizon than the next quarter next year. Now, if you did a one-to-end prioritization, these projects will never get funded because it's very hard to justify them on a, when you're comparing it with something revenue generating yeah. over end of this year. So the only way that has worked for me is to have sort of a percentage allocation in a disciplined way saying for the state that the business is in, this is what makes sense from an investment point of view. And it's going to be different for different companies. Yeah. And then foster that through that fashion. And again, even though it's a multi-year journey, you'll have to figure out how do you reward those employees? How do you make sure that they stay motivated and how are you going to evaluate them. So all of that has to go hand in hand. But those are some of the things that you can do to help offset natural biases against it. And that's a great opportunity for people to work on something much bigger risk and uh, sort of like a moonshot. So how do you allocate people to those projects? Is it people in your organization that they rotate working on projects like that or that's specific to like organization you have? I've used different models. I've used the model where we come up with that Montreal project and then we do some level of championing or socialization and then see 
for the people who are naturally gravitating to wanting to work on something like that and figure out a way to carve them out of where they are and make space for this. I've also done the model where there is a separate team that is hardened off for a five-year time frame where that is really what they're going to be doing, like full-time. And either can work depending on how the rest of the team views what is happening. I mean, the things to watch out for is it shouldn't feel like uh, the people who self-select into this or who get selected into this are somehow the A players and the rest are B players. I mean, running the business is no joke. So we should be careful to not create that sort of a dynamic. Similarly, if it's a separate team, you have to really watch out for people who are not on the team to feel like if it is successful, you will have to then change all the other things that you're doing because a lot of these big items end up permeating through the rest of the stack if they are successful Yeah. in terms of uh, engineering changes, code changes that will have to be done. But if it's viewed as some outside effort that nobody ever cared about and felt no ownership to, then it's hard to integrate everything if it is successful. So you just have to keep in mind the dynamics of how you will take that whatever is getting developed all the way to productizing it and how you manage people's expectations and how you manage the organization and the view they have of such projects. What's your suggestion to someone like, so this, they think this is a good idea and they don't currently have any project like, like that on their roadmap. They want to apply the learning and uh, they want to create a pool of projects so that people can uh, take up more risks and build something for the long term. If I want to have a conversation with my manager to get alignment, how do you sell that idea typically? It is super hard to do it if you're in, in the 20, 15, 20 team size, because first of all, it's hard to do big things with one or two people. You'll have to have at least in the order of eight people together to actually make progress. Just if you say you, you need potentially a PM, a set of end folks, maybe one person to do all the automation, you end up with like a minimum team size. So I will say it's hard to do for people with, with super small teams because you can't afford it and you can't be uh, impactful. So it does require someone with a large, larger scope of control to want to champion it and to fund it and to believe in the, in the promise that it brings for the organization as a whole. I think the best way to do it is to sort of make the business case for it, talk of the upside that is likely to come, just like we would in many of the other things that we do for a shorter time horizon. So the similar techniques we use to talk about end of year revenue, et cetera, the argument that usually gets us to fund these projects is to say, is it better for us to disrupt ourselves or is it better for somebody else to come and do it? And so once you put this as not so much a cherry on top type project, but really one that could become existential if we don't look around the corner, that really gets people to think about the importance of taking on such projects in a very different light because the reality is there's a ton of innovation going around us happening all the, all the time and you as a business owner or an engineering leader don't think about your business in a critical way where you know the next 20% startup can they take this area and do it better than you can they make it easier can they reduce the friction can they do something that is going to attract customers to use that over this 10-year product that you have and over time you've added a bunch of bells and whistles but super complex to use at this point. So I think questioning yourself and believing in it as something that is required for a long-term resilience of the business is a better way to sell these ideas, not just sell these ideas, that's actually why you want to do it. 
it's a better way to position this and approach it than to make this sound like a nice to have project but let's just go do some blue sky thinking put the business context in and usually usually that works yeah now say we have a project like this allocated on a roadmap and now we have freedom for people to try that out and they, now they have the opportunity to practice as a leader when you put people to lead those type of projects we do want to create a space for them to fail, to try and have experience under extreme high pressure. When do you decide that you need to step in to help out? And on the flip side, if for that person who leads that project, what is the time that I should think about to asking for help? So again, there's a personal aspect to it, which is building a relationship with that person and in general with your team. But the environment feels supportive and blameless and people feel comfortable having those open communications where bad news travels fast is important. And that's a culture thing. And that is the responsibility of leaders to make sure that people don't feel like they're going to get penalized for telling you something uh, that's either going wrong or personally asking for help. So that's one aspect of this equation. The second aspect of this equation is, so when do you know you need to interfere, step in, help. Well, I'm a huge believer in metrics. That is the only way to really scale. And that's also a way of providing the people on your team the freedom to do what they need to do without feeling like they're getting micromanaged because you can create metrics at the appropriate level where it just gets reported every, I don't know, weekly, bi-weekly, whatever cadence makes sense. And you have a pulse on what's going on without having to be on their case all the time. And depending on, if you set up good metrics, you will have the indicators that say something is going off track. You'll have early indicators, in fact, that say something smells fishy, then something is going wrong, and oh, you really need help. So you can see that transition and you will, over time, be able to predict when these things are about to happen and be able to step in to offer support help earlier in the cycle. But Iterating and figuring out which are the right set of metrics is super critical. Super helpful. We wanted to transition the topic a little bit because we're getting close to the end of our time. Could you share about a leader who's inspired or helped you to be a, a better leader? Ah, no, that's a tough question. In terms of people who have actually made me better, it comes from not one person, but multiple leaders, not just leaders, multiple people in my life. Very often I've actually learned uh, as much from my team as I've learned from any mentor I've ever had. So I try to look for behaviors that I'm trying to improve on and look at people who are particularly good at that. It could be things like public speaking. It could be things like how they approach sensitive issues. It could be how insightful they are during a code review. It could be any of these things. And that person doesn't have to, I mean, this could be somebody very junior on the team as well. I just look for capabilities, people who are really, really good at something. And I try to see what is it that I can learn from them to be a little bit better myself. I'll never be as good, but I can be a little bit better. So in a more practical sense, I get my inspiration from everyone around me. But people, the way they carry themselves, the value systems, and how they view their own growth and career. That's wonderful. 
I think one of the things that's really stood out to me in this conversation as well, especially when we're talking about focusing on the opportunities and, and less on focusing on how to prevent and mitigate the risk, it sounds like that perspective also then allows you to figure out what you can do to bring more joy or happiness to the teams that you work with and to really find the best parts of the different projects and things you get to do at work. What's brought you the greatest amount of joy as an engineering leader in everything that you're doing? It's hard to pick one. I would think there are two things that are almost equally important for me. I think one is providing something of significant value to end customers and talking to them and seeing the impact that it has actually had on people and what they can do with their businesses and how it has helped them innovate for their customers or their end users. That's a big part of what drives me to do what I do. The second thing, and it's equally fulfilling, is to see how I have helped somebody, some engineer, anybody on the team to do something that they themselves do not think was possible. So to help them go beyond what they thought was possible and within their skill set. And sometimes just expecting more than they expect of themselves is all you need for that to happen. And that's also extremely satisfying. Here's a quick recap of our top takeaways from our time with Vidya Srinivasan. Our first takeaway is about how to navigate your career trajectory. What are you good at? What are the skills that you can naturally do better than most other people? And how can you do more of that in your day-to-day job? And then be open to taking risks. Our next takeaway is about how to prioritize. The first thing you need to do is define your framework for business objectives and time horizons. What do you want to deliver for the business in the next quarter, in the next year, and in the next five years? And make the priorities very clear with metrics and clearly stated goals and clear time horizons. For the members on the team whose projects don't make the priority list, you'll need to explain the overall vision, why you're defunding that priority, even though it might be useful to the end user and impactful, you're going to need to explain how pursuing that priority will detract from the top priorities. We tend to assume people will react to situations the same way that we do. And really that's not often the case. So when you're entering into these conversations about prioritization, question your assumptions and be open to being wrong. Our next takeaway is about how to diffuse pressure. The first thing you can do is put things in perspective. And you can do that by asking yourself, given how I feel right now, if I were to fast forward five years, would I feel the same level of pressure or anxiety around this situation that I do right now? And what you might find is that situations often become more laughable and your anxiety disappears. The other is you need to remember that we're an incredibly resilient species and think on all of the times when you felt you faced an insurmountable problem but it passed, or you succeeded and made it through. Remember to put things in perspective and that we're incredibly resilient. Our next takeaway is about how to coach engineering leaders to be okay with risk and failure. First, whether or not a project is a success or failure is entirely perception. So if you want people to take risks, you have to make it okay. After failure, how are they viewed? How are they evaluated? What's the next thing that they do? Those are the signals about whether it's acceptable to take on risks. And if you have the resources, allocate budget and personnel to the more ambiguous three to five year time horizon projects. 
And if you do that, be sure to figure out how you're going to motivate, evaluate, and reward those people because it's less direct at that time horizon. Our last takeaway is about how to allocate resources to those ambiguous, long time horizon moonshot projects. One path is to come up with the moonshot idea, champion that idea to other people in your organization, and then see who naturally gravitates towards that project. Or you can create a specific team with a four to five year committed time horizon to specifically work on moonshots full time. And when you pursue either method, the key is to appropriately manage perceptions and expectations in your teams. So be careful to prevent the A player versus B player perception because it's not true. Working on the core business is just as important, if not more, than the Moonshot project. And the other is to set expectations for the project. You do that by sharing and illustrating the path to take whatever is getting developed in that Moonshot project and detailing down all the way to its release and impact on the business. This will reduce resentment because your team knows where you're headed and it will increase the team ownership when it eventually gets released. We'd like to give a special thanks to Mesmer, the exclusive accessibility partner of the Engineering Leadership Podcast. Mesmer's AI bots automate mobile app accessibility testing to ensure your app is always accessible to everybody. To jumpstart your accessibility and inclusion initiative, visit mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. You can also follow the link in our show notes. That's mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. Or you can also follow the link in our show notes. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.